You are listening to the Ethics for Medics podcast with Edjo Dinucci and Christoffer Bjerghese. Welcome back to the Ethics for Medics podcast, everybody. There is, for the first time in our history, four of us today in the room. It's the same room, and it's actually everybody Everybody is someone that you've already met. So Christopher is here, as usual. Then we've got Maria Marti Castaner, which you've previously met. And we've got Jiong Lee, which has also already been on the podcast. And then there is little me. And the reason why there needs to be four of us today is that it's an intimidating topic. And we've had intimidating topics before on this podcast. But today we are going to talk about suicide prevention And we're also going to talk about assisted suicide legislation within the healthcare system. And um, are people ready? Can we test the mics, please? We only have three mics for four people, so we might need to do a round of testing the mics. Jiong, are you ready? Yep. Christopher? Yes, I'm ready. I think I'm ready too. Yeah. Oh, people are intimidated by the suicide (laughs) topic, I can already tell. Um, And I'm going to start with a serious point, content warning. This is going to be triggering because obviously we're going to talk about suicidal thoughts and we're going to talk about uh, whether suicide can ever be rational, things like that. If you're having suicidal thoughts, please contact the Samaritans. Having said that, I'd like for us to start from a really, really tough question. And maybe we can just, we don't know how to do this, having four people in the room, maybe we'd have to like go around a little bit more than we normally do in this podcast. So the question that I'd like to pose to the three of you is, should every suicide be prevented? Should we be trying to prevent all suicides or are there suicides that we should not be preventing? Who wants to start on that? I would start with this point that uh, whether or not it should be requires that it could be prevented, right? So that's just for a detail here that uh, we are just assuming that you could prevent any of them. And thanks again, and I say this almost on every episode, but uh, the medic here brings up the philosophical principles. This is a famous philosophical principle that it's the odd implies can um, principle. And obviously it's a reminder to the fact that we can only do normative evaluation of things that are actually possible. So on the assumption that not every suicide can be prevented, then obviously not every suicide should be prevented. But it's quite easy to reformulate that and, and restrict the general question about whether every suicide should be prevented only to preventable suicides. But it's an important reminder from Christopher that clearly, empirically, not every suicide will be preventable. Um, but you still yeah. avoided the no, real yeah, question, exactly, right? Yeah. So and now... That, and that being said, well, my intuitive thought or my immediate thought would be that I still believe there are so much suffering in the world that sometimes it might be the best solution for the individual to, to make this decision. Um, of course, that's based on still the assumption that very often it is, or well, that's not an assumption, that is, I believe, a fact that very often it is possible to to handle all this pain and suffering in other ways than by suicide. But uh, I wouldn't be that sure that it's always possible to to find other solutions than that. And that's a very interesting way of putting it, right? I think we, we actually discussed it in those terms with the medical students um here in Copenhagen, the idea that basically, and it's really, really difficult to get one's head around that idea, but the idea basically being that sometimes we have to respect someone's wish to die. 
and uh, and that is also a very relevant idea when we will move to the uh, question about assisted suicide within healthcare. But I think I think that is the question we're talking about: should every suicide be prevented? And I think if we say, as Christopher just suggested, that sometimes we should respect people's wish to die, that probably means that not every suicide should be prevented. I don't want to put the, those words in your mouth, Christopher, but that's just my interpretation of your position. Maria, what do you think? Well, I think on those lines, uh, what I would say is that perhaps what we can do is reduce the risks or improve the life conditions and you know tackle those structures that make certain people wanting to commit suicide right so for example like we know that people that have experienced different kinds of violence like from uh, bullying to abuse domestic violence are more likely to commit suicide or have thoughts of suicide or certain groups that have experienced more discrimination and certain vulnerabilities are also more likely to experience these thoughts and 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 commit suicide so from my point of view what we need to do in terms of prevention is you know reducing violence improving the life conditions of groups that are discriminated reducing discrimination because these are things that might lead to certain people to you know either commit suicide or think about suicide right um, it sounds a lot like, if I can say, it sounds like a lot like the old debate about tackling the causes of crime as opposed to, you know, the criminal justice system tackling crime itself, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess if I can use that interpretation of what you're suggesting, Maria, you're saying basically, well, we can go one step back and instead of answering the question, should every single instance of suicide be prevented, well, we should definitely do a lot of work in suicide prevention in general by trying to tackling the causes of suicide and by trying to change the kind of structures. And I guess you were talking about violence, but I guess we can talk about sort of poverty. We can talk about, you know, the usual kind of players in, in, in this podcast. We can talk about the patriarchy and, and things like that. So, so this kind of racism, this kind of like capitalism, this kind of oppressive structures, I guess the idea would be they indirectly result in a lot of the suicides that we should prevent mm -hmm. i mean interestingly from a purely methodological point of view i think there is a, there is an interesting tension between what christopher was saying what maria is saying which is well are those suicides the ones that are statistically gonna correlate with oppressive structures are those suicide preventable probably a lot of those numbers you know cannot be directly brought down because changing the structure takes time and in the meantime those people will inevitably uh, die. So, so I think it also shows the complexity of this idea of what does it mean for a, for a certain event mm -hmm. to be preventable. Mm -hmm. um, um, so I think those are good points. I mean, now we've talked about the structures that you know increase the risk or may lead to certain people to think about suicide. But there's also like the mental health aspect of it, right? So not all people with a mental health condition will think about suicide. And then at the same time, not everybody that wants to commit suicide has a mental health care, a mental illness or a mental health condition. And yet we know that, for example, people that experience major depression might be more likely to, you know, have thoughts uh, of committing suicide, right? This is also one of the symptoms of major depression. And there on those cases, I think that, yes, we, of course, should prevent suicide, Right. Um, for people that is experiencing, for sure, a mental health condition that is leading to 
to to that uh, can i just follow up on that i think I guess part of the difficulty of this discussion is, as you point out, because um, I guess the desire to commit suicide is very often associated with a mental health condition like depression. I think it's, I think it actually is hard for people to disentangle the fact that the wish might, uh, you know, be autonomous, let's say, or like genuinely um, something that this person wants to happen with their bodies. I think a lot of people uh, maybe kind of take it for granted that if you have an underlying mental health condition um, and you have this desire to die or commit suicide, then that could not possibly be like legitimate. And that's part of where the, I guess, the interventionist attitude, I feel like, comes in, or maybe it's even paternalistic. It's like, oh, you have this mental health condition, Therefore, you don't know what you really want um, for yourself because you have this, I guess, uh, lens through which you're viewing the world and it's a very depressive one and you don't really know what's good for you and that's why we want to kind of prevent you from making a decision you cannot come back from, I think. So I feel like the wish to die or commit suicide is um, extremely pathologized to begin with because it has been associated so much with like underlying mental health conditions. So I think that's part of the difficulty for me anyway of like addressing this question. It's like, it's it's just difficult to disentangle, um, you know, whether the, I guess, someone not valuing their life in the way that is part of the norm or that you think they should, um, if that's legitimate or if it should be treated as illegitimate because it's caused by supposedly a mental health condition. Right? Thanks, Jiang. I think actually you're partly answering the question that I wanted to put to Maria, which is what happens once we bring mental health into the equation? And I guess one possible outcome of doing that is to use mental health to give a certain kind of answer to our initial question about preventing all suicides. That basically the idea being, okay, if you've got a serious mental health diagnosis, like you know, long-term depression, then that is what we're going to use to prevent you from ending your own life. And, uh, and if you don't have that kind of serious mental health diagnosis, then we might start thinking in terms of respecting your decision-making. And, uh, and I guess things are, as both of you are pointing out, more complicated yeah. than that. And then on top of that, there is the point that Jiang is making. I think that's a separate point. I think we should emphasize that for the listeners. So one question is the question of whether, you know, the mental health diagnosis can be used for the intervention to justify the intervention and is that fair? And the second question is, I mean, even if you have a mental health diagnosis, maybe we shouldn't assume that that decision shouldn't be thought of as autonomous. Mm -hmm. So there should maybe be space even within that first dichotomy to then say, well, we should respect your wish to die even if you have a diagnosis. Can I follow up on that quickly? Um, yeah, because I think, uh, I mean, I think it is a challenging thing um, to discuss, like, death and everything. Um, but I think if we think about how, I guess, we treat other realms of decision-making in people's lives, and if we, I don't know, I guess we assume that we're in a, like, very liberal uh, society where we let people make imprudent decisions if they want to, or even if it doesn't fully benefit them, because that is within their rights to do so, or it's 
uh, or something like that, um, then I don't see why the decision to die should be like off the table, uh, right? Like that should theoretically still be part of that. Um, so what is, I guess, what distinguishes the the choice or wish to die from, I guess, other kinds of choices where you might not be benefiting yourself? Thanks, John. Uh, pun intended. Maria is dying to come in here, but I just want to use a, a little bit uh, of time to bring in some more philosophical jargon here. I think that's a really important point that John is making, that the burden of proof here would be on, you know, a liberal society that then is saying, you know, we're going to respect your autonomy and we're going to let you take your own risks, but with this thing, with this thing, because it's irreversible or because people used to believe in, in God and stuff like that. Or no, sorry, people still do believe in God. But but, but anyway, so I, I think I, the, the, the point I wanted to make is that, Jiang, I agree with you that the burden of proof has to be on those saying, you know, death is of a different category, uh, at least within a liberal framework. Well, then I will add to it that, uh, at least in the Danish healthcare system, it is considered that approximately 90% of all suicides is uh, due to some kind of psychiatric uh, condition. Uh, however, that includes as well uh, substance, substance, substance abuse, substance abuse substance, yeah. which you can again argue to what extent is that, you know, psychiatric by default, right? You could as well be... Wait, I have to stop you there. We definitely need to do an episode on that. So wait, the <laughs> Danish health authorities consider substance abuse a mental health condition? That's crazy. That is often... Yeah, categorized in the same group, but I mean, that is just more like a technical group of where to place these different things, right? So, um, but yeah, if you have a kind of misuse, it's, it's considered within the same category as psychiatric, just like, you know, you have, there's been a lot of criticism regarding whole gender uh, feelings and so on, right? That has also been, by technical terms, considered within the psychiatry group of uh, diagnosis right that's even worse <laughs> we'll have to leave all these things for the next episode or another yes. episode right um no but, but i just think go back to what you were saying because i think that's very important and also important for the uh, doctors or, or medical healthcare professionals listening to the podcast so you were talking about the danish healthcare system you know saying that 90 percent of the suicide or like or, or people that uh, tried to commit suicide had a mental health condition yeah that's at least what the basic uh, data states right and approximately 50 percent of them of those committing suicide is having a depression mm -hmm. but so i also think in relation to what has already been taught about that uh, you know there is an if aspect regarding the individuals and then there's the structural element of it and then there's the whole healthcare system and what to what extent that is part of a structural perspective or to what extent it's possible to put it on the individuals, right? Mm -hmm. Because then again, as we had discussed before regarding depression, does it matter if you have a good reason to be depressed mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. on, right? So it's, it's a, how do you say, a skin answer, a skin point to make that just because it's psychiatry related or that it's medical related, then that is not legitimate to to commit suicide for example mm -hmm. and so on right it doesn't really tell much about the situation because again sometimes there can be some clearly 
considered disease involved. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it can easily be a structural category that makes it considered a disease or medical relevant, while you could also argue for the opposite, that this is just free choice or that it has nothing to do with medicine per se, just even though it's considered to be in the medical so I think that yeah yeah I mean from from uh, the perspective of a mental health care provider right you know I think that if we if we as mental health care providers can treat and can support people with mental health conditions and and that people have also suicidal thoughts that are you know linked to their mental health condition then you know we should try to treat and provide support to that mental health condition that is also linked to these suicidal thoughts and uh, you know I, I but, but then of course there's been few cases in the in or like at, at least I can remember one case in the press where there was like these young women that had been struggling with mental health problems for all her life and and she asked for assisted suicide is this a case from the netherlands yes yes right so and i think that that brings this interesting tension like from the mental health care perspective perspective we have to treat and we can prevent certain like some kinds of suicides hopefully by treating the mental health condition that these people is experiencing but then at the same time we might find some cases where there's been people that has been in treatment for years and years and years and they are not getting better and they are at a point where they really wish to die and then what do we do in those cases? I think Thanks with so the... Much. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jung. I think with that case, what was interesting is they granted her the decision, right? And she was only 26 years old yeah. when... She, also, I think the important part of that case was not only that she was not responsive to all the treatments for her uh, mental health conditions... But also that she was, you know, I guess judged to be autonomous or competent enough to make that decision for herself. So I guess that tension is dealt with in that system where they don't preclude you having autonomy just because you suffer from all these mental health conditions. So I think that's very important. And I I mean, in a way, even though my like visceral reaction to this decision being granted is like a negative one, I kind of like can I guess respect how in that Dutch system they are actually treating like I guess the the unresponsive condition um, and respecting the person's autonomy just as they would with I guess a non-psychiatric condition. But I think you said something that is key unresponsive right so you've tried many many things before you get to that point and that's where suicide prevention comes in right tackling I mean both the structures but also you know making sure that we identify people that have a mental health condition linked to these suicidal thoughts and that we provide the right treatment and support them also like trying to you know take out the means to reduce uh, suicide rates for instance there's different ways in which we can prevent suicides. But I'm not sure that I agree Maria that that should be the last resort right because i think that 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 point that you're making assumes basically that okay we can maybe respect sometimes suicide but it's a it's a kind of last resort thing if we've tried all these other things because trying all these other things and failing causes a lot of suffering so this person suffered a lot and 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 in a way it's almost like what we were talking about earlier that you know you need to sort of convince the system that you really mean it and how do you convince the system that you really mean it 
by suffering basically, by not responding to treatment, by going through a lot of unsuccessful interventions. So, uh, and, and, and But how do you decide then? Because you have people that have had suicidal thoughts or that have tried to commit suicide and didn't succeed and receive treatment and they can now sort of like reflect back and, and feel good about having received that support and treatment and not having committed suicide, right? And I so, agree that it is really difficult. And in fact, I think our discussion here has a really nice complexity to it because within a few minutes, we've brought up mental health both as a reason to intervene so basically saying, oh, we can prevent those suicides because these people have a diagnosis and we're going to use that diagnosis to say that their decision-making is not autonomous. But now we've also brought up mental health as a reason to understand why someone might want to die, right? Namely, because they might have sort of uh, chronic depression and they might have tried many things. So I think even our little discussion here on the podcast shows how right you are, Maria, that those things are really complex, mm -hmm. right? And in fact, I mean, if I can say, maybe it doesn't help that suicide is still such an highly moralized, taboo topic that we cannot really talk about it and the newspapers don't cover it because they're afraid that it's going to promote it. But if we continue to have so much respect for it, then we cannot have exactly the kind of complex uh, discussions that the four of us for example, are having now. And if I can say, we definitely need the Ford microphone because two of us are struggling with this sharing of the microphone. But yeah, so in a way, I both profoundly disagree with this idea that it should always be a last resort. But I completely agree with you that if we start having this really difficult conversation about, no, it sometimes doesn't even need, not only we should sometimes respect it and not prevent it, but it doesn't even need to be a last resort. Then the question is, you know, who has the authority to decide? But as Jiang was saying, I guess our system, you know, we have a liberal system in which who has the authority to decide? The agent. Um, having said that, can I maybe push back on your point a little bit, Ezio? Because I think part of also the philosophical difficulty of talking about, I guess, suicide as a supposed solution to suffering and life's problem is like, well, is it a solution? Because as you say, even though it's maybe not just or fair to kind of let people suffer so that, you know, choosing to die can be a kind of last resort, it's like, what is the reason to make it even a resort in the first place? Because it's not like, um, I guess, dying will solve all the things that made you suffer. Those problems will still be there. You simply just won't exist anymore. So I feel like, I don't know, that introduces like a philosophical weirdness to the discussion of like well what are the reasons to actually favor uh, suicide or death given that you just aren't even a person anymore or you don't you cease to exist if you are successful in your attempt right so you are neither suffering but also not really benefiting or able to feel the joys of life anymore you're just simply like a non i guess a non-person Thanks, Jiang. I mean, that points out, I mean, to, to put it in a, in a ver in very simple terms, I guess what you're saying is that, you know, philosophically, the, the, the cost-benefit analysis of dying, you know, has to be done, right? And it cannot necessarily be done because dying is of a different category, right? And, um, and, and, and I, I agree with you that that's why suicide has been, I guess, bothering philosophers for millennia because and, and and i guess i mean without sort of i, I don't know that we have the, the the time to to get into that kind of uh 
deep discussion about basically, you know, what kind of account of death do we give and then, you know, the consequences that our account of death will have mm. on, uh, on the question of, you know, the potential benefits basically of, of dying uh, and things like that. But I guess we can take it as a, pre your, your argument, John, can be taken as a prima facie argument for the idea that actually, contrary to what I was saying, death is different. And then maybe that could then in turn be taken as an argument in favor of what Maria was saying that, you know, because it is of a different dimension, then it can only ever be, if at all, a last resort. Can I ask the doctor in the room here, like <laughs> if, if we bring this to the clinic and, and you see a patient that uh, tells you that they are having thoughts of suicide, are these things... Do these things matter, or what? What what will the GP do, or the doctor do on those cases, right? Um. Yeah, it's a really relevant question, of course. I mean, it is very interesting that I, as a doctor in general, I, you know, I cannot forcefully stop people from doing suicide. I have no legal rights to do so, even though they, even if they tell me that they're gonna do it. I mean, I can only forcefully stop people if I consider them psychotic mm -hmm. at the moment. Meaning if I can somehow have, uh, if I do have some good reasons to believe they have a, a hallucinating yeah. or delusional or completely confused, then I could argue, okay, in this moment, the person is not autonomous and cannot mm -hmm. make their own decision, right? Of course, very often these people in the clinic will be that much in suffering and pain that they are still seeking some kind of, uh, of help. And of course, in that moment, you can hospitalize them directly, right? At mm -hmm. least that's how it's supposed to be. Of course, the whole psychiatric field is under an extreme pressure, right? So people get out way too early very often. But uh, in general, of, I mean, Anytime you have a depressed uh, patient or any any kind and of, any kind of patient in suffering, you should definitely consider, or very often you have to ask about uh, suicide. Mm -hmm. And so far, the evidence shows that most people are actually pretty honest about uh, if they are considering suicide. So it does require, it's, it simply requires that you ask them about it and they mm -hmm. will tell and uh, often they would like help from that moment, right? So it's not a, in that way, it's pretty simple. It's only the case that if they actually consider doing it and, uh, and they are completely sane, then I cannot do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think that also points out to the fact that, you know, when they come and share that with you often there's a desire to reduce that suffering right or the sharing means also that you know they are perhaps seeking help um but maybe i'm just making this assumption and, and for some people it's not that the case they are just you know sharing uh how they feel and what they wish not necessarily wanting to change but 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 my like in my experience in general when they share that it's because there's also you know a desire to 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 not suffer like that or to receive some kind of support or to prevent that from happening. Definitely. Right? And uh, the evidence also shows that m most people 
before they commit suicide, they did try to seek help with yeah. the GP or the doctors or someone else. But also the GPs are also one of those they they actually contact. So it's rarely the case that you know they are completely sane and they don't they don't mind and they just uh, do it on their own, right? So there will often be some kind of a signal. Then mm-hmm. it's just a question if you catch. And would that be philosophers a good argument then to say, well, we should prevent all suicides or we should prevent then suicides? But can I, um, uh, yeah, I was quite fascinated to hear that you were only entitled to, um, I guess, intervene in cases where the patient coming in is psychotic um, and not based on, I guess, the, them saying that they're going to, I guess, harm themselves. Right. So is that based on the fact that their wishes have like a falsity to it, as in it's caused by something that is not in their choice um, or. Yeah, it's, because it's simply based on the whole autonomy mm. element, right, that uh, I can only, you know, for use force for people who are not autonomous anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. So, of course, children, as that's another mm-hmm. One that I guess we don't want to go into now, but that those people and uh, people that are psychotic, but in that case, that in the same category as psychotic, there are plenty of other conditions that can, in the moment, be considered psychotic, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But my question is, I guess, then, um, what would be the appropriate reaction from like the GP's perspective if it's not a psychotic patient that's coming in? It's maybe a a very deeply analytical philosopher who has really contemplated all the ills of life and they've just decided you know what it's not really worth being in this world and they're coming to you for advice or help on how to I guess fulfill those wishes but they're clearly not psychotic they've you know they're coming to you with a kind of analysis of why they want to t- undertake such a decision would prevention be appropriate in this case if it's a case? philosopher don't save them don't save them <laughs> Well, I mean, in that moment, I I haven't tried that, I have to say. Also, again, most people do want help. That's why they mm-hmm. go to the GP. They just don't go to the GP to tell them their plan and then leave yeah. again, right? So I think it's very rarely the case, but I've heard about these cases. Also, senior people where um, the, the spouse call the GP because uh, the spouse, the other one, has... Uh, has considering doing suicide right and you cannot really do anything because i mean you cannot do it based on the the, the other one right so it's, it's about you know investigate why and is there any kind of hope any anything that you could uh, try to dig into to stop these people from but can i say that i think now we need to keep two different kind of discussions that are running parallel here separate so i think there is the one about the diagnosis the psychosis, the other possible mental health condition. But I think, and that's a, that's a really complex one that we've been having. But I think now Christopher has also brought in, you know, a much easier maybe question to deal with, which I think is what Maria was pointing to, namely that if there is evidence that the person is seeking help, can we take that to be also evidence that the person doesn't want to die? And then can we in turn basically say, okay, so here we've got a straightforward argument for suicide prevention. That person can be stopped and should be stopped because they're asking for help. And if we're failing the ones 
that are asking for help. Then there is the question of, you know, how do we deal with that, right? And I guess, Christopher, you were pointing to the fact that maybe the, the system doesn't necessarily have the resources if you have to basically pretend that they're psychotic to stop them. But it sounds like that Maria here is right, that if they are giving us those very clear signals of asking for help, those can possibly most times be interpreted as no wanting to die. And those are the ones, if they're not philosophers, that we should save maybe. Is that such a controversial thing? I think that's at the at, at the foundation of also suicide prevention, right? So make this support accessible and available and let people know that if they are having these thoughts, they can call this number. They can go and talk to their GP. They can ask for help and support. I think as you were mentioning, you cannot force them into treatment. You cannot bring them to the psychiatric ward, except in few cases, but you can still provide support or this space to talk about it, to have talk therapy, or to see what what else is going on, right? And and that is some kind of intervention. That I mean, they still can decide if they take it or not. But and that's at, that's at the foundation of prevention. Just make it accessible. Let people know that they can come and and tell and share uh, how they are feeling or what they are thinking. Jiang's thought experiment about the analytic philosopher having thought through the, all, all the options and wanting to die has made me check the statistics on suicide. I'm just going to give the one from the US just because it's a, it's a decent sized country. So suicide in 2021 in the US, suicide was the 11th leading cause of death and, uh, and 48,000, the ninth <laughs> worldwide. worldwide. Okay. And 48,000 people committed suicide in the US in, uh, in 2021. So I guess the numbers are, you know, substantial in terms of, uh, and especially in terms of suicide attempts. So there were 1.7 million suicide attempts in the US in 2021. Uh, I mean, not that those numbers tell us very much, but it's just that, you know, let's not reduce it to, you know, a sort of a, a kind of fringe phenomenon. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if it is the ninth uh, no, cause young, of death worldwide. In, in young men, uh, it's been between the first and the second now i should know that as the oh, right. but but it is one of the because you know, that's the, the thing isn't it that men commit suicide more than women is that a thing in denmark the stats says that uh, women are attempting suicide 10 times as much as men but men are succeeding in suicide three times as often than women they are okay. more lethal yeah or, so they are yeah. using much more violent methods and they have much more success in doing it so three times as many actually succeed and there's also the whole idea that perhaps women tend to go and seek out mental health care services before than men and with men there's still a lot of stigma associated with like mental health and talking about how they feel and so so that also leads to this perhaps increased risk can i just make a methodological in fact two methodological points one is that it's interesting that this you just gave christopher because i guess 10 times more attempts by women, but then men are three times more successful. I guess that can be interpreted both as sort of, you know, on the attempts, so that actually only a third, you know, it's actually a third of men that are dying as opposed to women. But I think what you're saying is actually that three times as many men commit suicide as women. Um, but anyway, that was just a methodological point about how to count that. Um, but that also, the fact that I couldn't get my head around those numbers reminds me that we've gone on for quite a while and we kind of promised that we were going to do assisted suicide and euthanasia as well but can i maybe suggest that we actually sort of stop here 
is that a is that an acceptable suggestion uh, it was our first podcast with four people in the room and we promise you if we will have more podcasts with four people in the room we will get a fourth microphone thanks for listening <laughs>